Well, good morning. morning. There's a lot of you out there. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you all today. Um, it's an incredible privilege to be able to walk us through uh, God's word, and um, I'm just ex- super excited. Uh, so I'm not going to take much time. Let's, let's get started. Over the last nine weeks or so, we have been going through a series called Love Walked Among Us. It's where we have taken uh, and gone through events uh, through the biographies of Jesus, which are also called the Gospels. And we, we see from this uh, the perspective that the beauty and the vitality of Jesus is most readily seen, is most visible in the way that he loved those around him. And in this, during this time, we've seen, if you've been here, that as Jesus interacts with others, he shows us the very heart and the very character of God. And, 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 and real quick, here's, here's why uh, I believe that's important uh, here today for us. Um, in our current cultural climate, uh, so many people are calling for more love to be shown between one another. Love between races, between cultures, between gender, between political opponents. But the difficult part about that is that nobody can agree on what that looks like or what that even means. And even, even if they're not one who senses love or a greater need for love, even if they're indifferent or hostile, they find themselves in the same exact boat. They don't know what they're living for, let alone what they're fighting for. And so, in walks Jesus. And he confronts our culture's definition of love and he turns it completely upside down. And he tells us clearly who we are to be, who we are, and how that impacts the way that we interact with one another. And then he lives it perfectly. And, and, and it's truly, truly remarkable to watch him do it. So I'm, I am very, I'm very excited here today to go through this with you. As we move into the specifics of the passage, my hope for us today is twofold. Uh, number one, that we would be confronted by Jesus' definition of greatness. And number two, that we would feast on Jesus' example of love. Number one, we would be confronted by Jesus' definition of greatness, and two, that we would feast on Jesus' example of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you desire to be known by us and so have revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive what you would say to us today. Amen. All right, so I mentioned the first thing, that we would be confronted by Jesus' definition of greatness. Uh, so to do that, let's, uh, let's go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, uh, verses 24 through 27. You can follow along with me on the screen if you need to, uh, so, so let's read that together again. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. 
but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, the setting of this passage is the Jewish holiday of Passover, where Jesus and his 12 disciples have gathered together in this small secret room to celebrate the Passover meal. Uh, this would be Jesus' final meal before he was to be executed on a cross. This famous meal is often referred to as the Last Supper, and it's what's depicted in Leonardo da Vinci's uh, well-known painting. So this would be Jesus' last moments with his with all 12 of his disciples. For that very night and into the next day, Jesus would be brutally beaten, tortured, and executed. But not only would he physically suffer these things, mere hours later he would experience the pain of betrayal and abandonment as his friends, who were among them sitting at the table, one of them would betray him to the rebellious or to the religious leaders uh, who sought to kill him. Another would deny he even knew him, and the rest would bail on him when it came down to it. They ran and hid. And Jesus knew ahead of time that he was to suffer this way. We read in John 10 uh, that Jesus predicted his death and had set his face towards it in obedience to the plan of God for his life. If you were aware that tomorrow morning, after a night of terrible agony, you would be led out to a cruel and humiliating death. Who among us would not feel overwhelmingly distracted with apprehension and fear? But even if we could gather some sort of stoic strength and come to terms with the fact that this was coming, who among us could be present with our friends for a supper to enjoy eating with them, to encourage them, to pay attention to their needs? Let us look on Jesus in this moment. On the same evening that he was to be betrayed, he ate supper with the very people who would betray him, desert him, deny him. And in spite of all this, we shall see he loved them. So, as Jesus is preparing to suffer and die in a short while, an argument breaks out among his disciples. With Jesus so close to the cross, his followers are so far from him in spirit. For those of us in here who would call ourselves followers of Christ, what areas are, are we far from our Savior in spirit. It says in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now we can only guess at, uh, at, what, at what began the argument. Uh, however it started, we eventually, it eventually turned into a fight um, over who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. I want to take a moment because I think it'll serve us well to imagine how that argument went. This is just imagination. It's not here in the text. This is imagination. I mean, we can pretty much assume that Thomas was like, I, I doubt it'll be me, you know? 
right? But the rest of them, in all likelihood, pointed to specific interactions they had with Jesus that showed their special position, uh, that showed their superiority over the ones around them. Some may have pointed to the reality that Jesus was always teaching about the kingdom and that unlike some fishermen in the room, they were educated and had something to offer leadership. Maybe some of them argued that Jesus valued justice for God's people, which was exactly what they cared most about. Others may have argued that Jesus cared about truth and holiness, which was of course what they cared about most and probably would boost them to the top. We don't really know, of course, but all we know is that on the eve of the most significant event in all of history, Jesus' disciples are arguing about power and prestige. Let's move into Jesus' shoes now and let's try to imagine how he might have felt in, in this situation. This argument that they're having, it's literally the antithesis of everything that Jesus has taught them up to this point. Have they learned nothing? And he's only got a few hours left with them. But how does Jesus respond? Does he demean them? Does he become agitated? Does he see all the work and the time that he spent with them as a waste and condemn them? Does he move away from them in silent brooding? It might do us well to consider this moment the next time a coworker, a friend, a loved one, someone close to us does something that seems to show a slowness of heart or of mind or else seems to trample on every service and deed and action we've done for them. Let's turn to Jesus' patient response to his disciples, starting in verse 25. As we read this again, consider that this is the, as at least the fourth time, based on what we have recorded in the Gospels, that Jesus has said something like this to his disciples. 25 through 27, we are... Read with me. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." What we see here in in this passage is Jesus redefining greatness. He doesn't condemn them in this moment. He doesn't dismiss their running after greatness even. Instead, he says, you are running in the wrong direction, in the complete wrong direction. And he does this, he shows them this by contrasting two dramatically different definitions of greatness. On the one hand, we see those who view greatness as the power and the right to exercise superiority and lordship over others. Jesus here calls them benefactors. And what he means by this is he's talking about those who deserve recognition. 
They deserve privilege. They deserve honor for the things that they've done. I remember at a previous job I worked at, one of my coworkers made a big stink about a file I had misplaced. And she, she, she raised a big stink in front of the whole office and she wouldn't let it go. And it was deeply humiliating to me, both because it was public, right, all my coworkers around me, but because personally, I am a monstrous, pharisaic, huge, just perfectionist. <laughs> and so you can see what I was up against. Not more than two days after that moment, I found not one, I found three files that my coworker had misplaced. I had hit the revenge jackpot. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not gonna, I, I'd be lying if to say if I wasn't tempted to say, <clears throat> well, but because I'm a follower of Jesus, I said, you know, hey, I'm just going to file these quietly. I said a prayer, and I, I went back to my desk. But uh, the funny thing, I'm not the hero of this story because it, go, it goes further, right? No more than two weeks later, I'm complaining about my, my work situation to my wife. And what comes up in the conversation? Oh, I got to tell her all about the time where I did right. I had to show myself morally superior to my coworker who was in that room. I had to point out that I was the one who did this. I put my moral, my moral status up there and I said, look at that, look at that. Look at me go. I deserve recognition. I deserve a better working environment. I deserve these things. You see, I had become a benefactor. <laughs> and then Jesus walks in and he tells us that this is not his way. He teaches his disciples and any who would follow him that egotism is a worldly, evil, vile characteristic, and it gets in the way of loving people. Think for a moment of the most recent time that your ego got in the way of loving somebody. Is Jesus right about his definition of the world's greatness? Do you think he's got them pegged? I think he knows us better than we know ourselves. What Jesus is calling his followers to here is summed up in one word, humility. 
Many of us imagine ourselves to be humble, but we cannot bear to see a contemporary honored or favored more than ourselves. Few of us are able to be glad in seeing an equal being promoted higher than us. We are angered when our kindness goes unnoticed or or unappreciated. We all secretly believe ourselves to be more deserving than others around us. We despise being at the bottom because at the bottom, we are powerless. How much envy and jealousy is at work in the world today and in us? And this isn't lost on me. Don't you know that today, my brother Josh, Brandon Compton with charisma up the yin yang, and myself are preaching the same passage today. <laughs> at every turn, at every turn, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not lying, at every turn, there's this whisper, who's the greatest? <laughs> who's the greatest? <laughs> Ugh, how horrible. But you know what, how good is God to allow me to teach this passage today? Why? Because my definition of greatness is stupid. And when I put my trust in society's idea of greatness, it's exhausting. I'm exhausted. Are you? Who in here is not exhausted by chasing after the world's definition of greatness. Now up to this point, I imagine, I have two types in this room. I imagine I have the head nodders, like everything you're saying, yes. And then I imagine I have the yeah buts, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I get what you're saying, but you don't know so-and-so. I get what you're saying, but not that. I get what you're saying, but you don't know the situation. Really? Go that low, powerless? And honestly, this morning I'm thankful for the yeah buts. You know why? Because they may, they just may see how radical this is. They just may see that more clearly here today because it's not easy. It is completely foreign to everything that we think and do and say, to everything that's around us. It is completely, it's alien. It's like it came from another planet. And if changing the way we think about greatness isn't difficult enough, we must also change our actions. You see, that takes us to our next portion. We're gonna see Jesus not just talk about attitude, but he's gonna talk about, he's gonna do it. He's gonna do it. So let's turn, in, uh, turn to John 13. We're gonna start in verse one and we're gonna read through verse five. It'll be up on the screen as well. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, 
when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God he, he, and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking, on a towel, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Chronologically, this episode takes place after the disciples' argument. And John, being one of the 12 disciples who were there that night, he remembers the way that Jesus loved them. He says there in verse one that he loved them to the end. This is not some distant biographer adding a detail to a story. This is the reflection of someone who was there. Someone who felt the love of Jesus in that moment. Notice how, how he slows down and recounts the events starting in verse four. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What an impact this must have had on John. Now, foot washing in that culture was a task reserved for servants. And, and there may not be a modern equivalent to this, but the lowliness of this deed transcends culture. Am I right? For some of us, like my sister who gags at the sight of feet, this would be the worst possible scenario. <laughs> but at the very least, we can say a foot washer is the opposite of a benefactor. Here we see how Jesus loves, and he shows us what love look like, looks like and what it does. Love is humble, and it serves. It's not just humble. It doesn't just serve. It is humble, and it serves. Many times we see a need and say to ourselves, I'll serve somewhere, but I won't do that. But where in this story, show me where in this story, is there any notion of preference or special calling? Jesus didn't pray about it. You see, humbling someone always creates an inequality. Serving somebody always creates an inequality an injustice, a space where there seems this unfair and unproportionate world, a place where time and effort that you give seems excessive, impractical, unreasonable, unjust. We often find ourselves saying, if I'm kind to them, they won't see how painfully they've wronged me. If I humble myself like this, what will it even gain? If I serve them like this, how long will I have to keep doing it? This place of inequality is a place only God can make right. This place of inequality is a place of faith. But let's go back real quick to the foot washing story. 
Do you know that who was among uh, those disciples that, that Jesus, you know, who, who's, who was among them who Jesus washed their feet? It was Judas Iscariot. He was there in the room, the one who would betray him. Jesus, knowing that his friend, his friend was hours from betraying him, washed Judas's feet. The stink and the grime of Judas's feet was now on Jesus's clothes and Jesus's gentle act of kindness was upon Judas's feet. And for what? To what end? What good would it do? Jesus left such questions and concerns to his father in heaven. In what areas of our lives are we saying, to what end? What difference will this make? As we, uh, as we come near the end this morning, um, I wanna point out one more thing about this story and it's crucial to our understanding of what's going on. You see, it's one thing to see a man who was named Jesus serve his friends and show love to them. It might even be inspiring to see a great leader humble himself by serving those under him. But Jesus' lesson that night was more incredible than that. You see, as we encounter Jesus in this story, there is something mysterious about him that is more understood than spoken of. We're sensing something about who he was that is different than anyone else we have ever read about. One clue that we find in this story is when Jesus sets himself as the example of humility. Who do you know that has big enough shoulders to set themselves as the supreme example of humility? Anyone in here want to take that on? My guess is that nobody in their right mind would. This is either an eccentric egomaniac, a crazy person, or he's something we've never seen before. You see, all of the rest of scripture, all of the rest of scripture testifies to the reality that Jesus, though certainly a man, was more than that. He was the creator God come down to live among us. And what did he come to do? He came to serve humbly and to give up his life to pay for the sins of all of us for all the times that we have let our ego get in the way of loving others. And then he proved his own divinity when he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul, a later follower of Jesus, uh, wrote the following words to encourage humility among the church at Philippi. You can read it up there on the screen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' life, his entire life, from his birth to his death, was a life of humility. The story we read today is a model of how Jesus did everything. All lines of his story can be traced back to this idea of humble service. We do the opposite. We, being not equal with God, count equality with God something to be grasped. How? How do we do this? Whenever we say, I know what's best for my life. I know what will make me happy. Greatness for me is what I define it as. That is a spot reserved only for the God who created you. He knows you better than you know yourself. (laughs) In stark contrast to us, we see in this story of Jesus, who was very God, we see him take a lowly position as a servant. And he turns to his followers and he says, this is what life is about. This is what I am about. This is why I came to live. This is my life. And then he says, follow me and I will show you life that's truly truly satisfying. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Let's pray. God, we desire to see you, ourselves, and others more clearly. May we, in seeing Jesus today, be moved to see our own poverty and his beauty. We ask you now, Father, for the miracle of Christ's humility. Amen. Amen. We thank Arnold.